This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and tonight we're going to be doing a special edition of The Legal Impact where it's going to be a broadcast of Explaining Dot. Explaining Dobbs, Legal and Healthcare Impacts of the Supreme Court's Abortion Ruling. So this is regarding the Dobbs Supreme Court decision that recently came out. And we have uh, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Rebecca Purdom, uh, moderating Professor Lucy Hodder, our Director of Health Law and Policy Programs, and then uh, Professor John Graby, who's the Director of the Warren P. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service, with introductory remarks by Dean Megan Carpenter. I'm Megan Carpenter, Dean of the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. As many of you have heard me say before, a law school should not just include learning that takes place in the classroom. Those classes are a vital part of legal education, but a law school is about legal education more broadly as well. It is a living and breathing institution that properly should be part of the civic life of our community. This is an important principle that we share at UNH Franklin Pierce. And we're happy to welcome you today to our law school. As citizens, we operate within legal frameworks and structures that we rely upon every day and we seek to understand them. Sometimes those legal frameworks are solid pillars, so solid as to seem indestructible. And some things change course more quickly. Some seem solid, but then we feel the sand shift beneath our feet with significant implications. And when there are shifts, when there are changes that are big that we don't understand, we look to the experts. When big things happen, we need to learn, especially issues that touch on the very values that people hold dear regardless of political perspective. It's helpful to have teachers. As John Dewey said, education is not preparation for life, it is life itself. And we are so fortunate today to have two of our experts here with us. Professors John Graby and Lucy Hodder are themselves pillars of our community and of civic engagement. Professor Graby is director of our Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership and Public Service. He teaches constitutional law and civil procedure. He also had an appellate practice and clerked for 17 years for a number of different appeals and district court judges um, within the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. When this decision came down, honestly, one of the very first things I did was to reach out to Professor Graby to comment that he was going to be really busy over the coming days as people reach out to him for his expertise. Um, I may also have said that his commentary in the Concord Monitor, um, his commentary in law review articles is for me sort of like therapy of the intellect. Lucy Hodder is a pillar of our community as well. She is a professor of law at the law school and also director of our health law and policy programs. She works also with IHPP, um, the Institute for Health Policy and Practice at the College of Health and Human Services at UNH. Here at the law school, she teaches across the spectrum of health law. um, And she also supervises our our certificate program. 
Lucy has been engaged in uh, the New Hampshire community for a, a long time as legal counsel and senior health policy advisor to Governor Maggie Hassan. And she was also a shareholder at Rath Young and Pignatelli. I'm also honored to welcome today our Associate Dean um, for Academic Affairs, Rebecca Purdom. Rebecca comes to us most recently um, from Emory, and she has started programs at law schools um, in various places across the country. She's also an environmental law expert and will be drawing on her expertise um, in the coming days as well to talk about more Supreme Court cases. We are honored by the service of Professors Graby and Hodder and Associate Dean Purdom to this institution and to our broader community. And I personally am so proud to call them colleagues and friends. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Carpenter. And thank you, John and Lucy. And to our audience, we have 124 people who have joined us for this conversation because it's an important conversation. For those of us who are lawyers and law professors, we happen to know something that much of the public doesn't, which is the last week of June is really exciting. It is often when the cases the Supreme Court has been working on through the term finally get released in the last few weeks. So many of us sit by our, our blogs and, and wait to see cases drop. Folks like Professor Graby look at all of them. Professors like me and Professor Hodder look for the ones that have particular import for our field, but it's a rich time. And in my entire career, I don't ever remember a last week of June like this one. It has been substantial. Because of an earlier leaked opinion and because everyone was holding their breath, we knew that the Dobbs opinion was coming and it was going to be a monumental um, opinion and it didn't disappoint in that way. So we do, as Professor Carpenter or as Dean Carpenter said, want to spend some time just explaining we're about to go into a holiday weekend where we literally celebrate the country. And I know many folks on this webinar will be meeting with friends and family and having barbecues and maybe beers and talking about the decisions that just happened. So our goal here today is mostly to give you information so those conversations can be rich and informed. And with that, I think, Professor Gravy, I would ask you to start us. Can you just give us an overview of the Dobbs case? What is that case about and what did it do? Okay, I'm happy to do that. Thank you. Thank you for those kind introductions, uh, everybody. And I was just scrolling through uh, our, the impressive list of attendees and uh, see lots of student names and just wanted to send my greetings and to say, I hope you're all having great summers. Um, so the Dobbs case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decided last week. Um, the case uh, presented a straightforward question, uh, whether a Mississippi statute that made abortion unlawful after 15 weeks into a pregnancy uh, except in cases of medical emergency or severe fetal abnormality, uh, is constitutional. Now, the reason why um, the case went to the court is that there has been, of course, settled law in this area. Um, two cases in particular have occupied this space. Uh, Roe versus Wade, which uh, everybody's probably familiar with, decided in 1973, uh, which first recognized uh, a right to abortion under the US Constitution, which placed limits on the ability of states to limit or prohibit abortion. And then in 1992, to the surprise of many in a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, the Supreme Court or a Supreme Court that had changed quite a bit between 1973 and 1992, 
upheld the core holding of Roe versus Wade, although it did modify the law significantly. Um, after Roe and Casey, as we learn in constitutional law, um, there's a very significant marker in pregnancy that occurs at the point of viability. Okay, viability is the notion, is the point in time uh, where the developing fetus could at least theoretically live outside the womb. Um, and viability occurs right around 24 weeks. And so um, this statute, again, this statute outlawed all or nearly all abortions after 15 weeks into pregnancy. This statute was patently inconsistent with settled Supreme Court law. Um, that nine weeks makes all the difference in the world, right? Or some would have argued or was argued in this case um, between um, viability and, um, and the pre-viability state of fetal development, which occurs at 15 weeks. So the question raised in this case was whether the Roe and Casey rule, okay, uh, this rule again that said there's a right to abortion prior to viability, whether it should be limited to recognize that Mississippi can regulate abortions after 15 weeks, or even more aggressively, whether Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey should be overruled entirely. Well, as you all probably know, five justices of the Supreme Court, Justice Alito, Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, voted to overrule Roe and Casey um, and to send the issue back to the states uh, without really any constitutional constraints. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote separately, he concurred in the judgment to say that he would have merely upheld the constitutionality of the Mississippi law and recognized uh, that the viability rule is not a good point at determining constitutional interests, um, but he would not have reached the question whether to overrule Roe and Casey. All right, so, um, and so the decision is being reported as a six to three decision, and that's true, there were six votes to uphold the statute, but it was really a five four decision with respect to the question of whether to overrule Roe and Casey. All right, so the court dis turned to three basic arguments uh, in deciding whether to stand by the rule that it had adopted. Three basic sources of authority in the constitution for putting up a stop sign to the states. The first theory, which was addressed in less than a paragraph uh, that had been put forth in support of continuing to recognize constitutional protection for abortion rights uh, is the equal protection theory. The notion that the equal protection clause of the constitution should be understood to protect some measure of choice and autonomy for women with respect to their reprodu reproductive health. That issue, as I said, received less than one paragraph of treatment. Um, the court cited to an older case, which held uh, that discrimination against preg pregnancy illnesses is not discrimination on the basis of sex or gender, and said so too here. Simply the fact that only women have abortions does not mean that a law regulating abortions is discrimination against sex or gender. Therefore, the Equal Protection Clause was not going to be a fruitful way of exploring whether there's a constitutional right to an abortion, according to the majority. The second theory is the theory under which the Roe and Casey line of cases had developed. Okay, the law had evolved so as to recognize that the right to an abortion, okay, recognized initially in Roe versus Wade as a privacy right rooted in a whole bunch of different 
uh, amendments to the Constitution. But eventually in Casey rooted in the 14th Amendment's due process clause as a substantive liberty interest, whether that ruling, whether that holding that the right to an abortion, the qualified right to an abortion is a substantive liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment. That's the theory that was challenged. Okay, And the majority said that theory can no longer support the law in this area. That theory could no longer support uh, a right to an abortion. Uh, The majority said uh, that substantive liberties, such as the abortion right that had been recognized in Roe versus Casey, Um, can only be held to be specially protected or fundamental if they are deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions and essential to the concept of ordered liberty. All right. So this is a very, very narrow take on this doctrine known as substantive due process. It is no secret that the more conservative members of the Supreme Court do not like the substantive due process doctrine. Justice Thomas wrote separately to say that the doctrine should be done away with altogether. Substantive due process is at its most controversial in situations, as with abortion, where a right is being protected, although it is not textually mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. The majority in this case really made it very clear that it was not a fan of substantive due process rights, unenumerated substantive due process rights, though it did leave the door open for saying, yes, there can be some specially protected due process rights, even in circumstances where they're not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. But in order for that to be the case, there needs to be a history that shows that we've always understood those rights to be specially protected fundamental rights. And the reason for that, says the majority, is democracy. Any other rule opens the door to an unelected federal judiciary Uh, to impose their policy preferences on the rest of us through the guise of constitutional lawmaking. So the majority says, let's look at the history. We're talking about the due process clause of the 14th Amendment because we're talking about limits, alleged limits on the states. The due process clause of the 14th Amendment became law in 1868. So 1868 becomes a significant date. Let's ask ourselves, in 1868, Was it understood in this country as a matter of deep historical tradition that the right to abortion was a constitutional right, even though not mentioned in the Constitution? And the majority says, that's ridiculous. Abortion was not not only not a deeply rooted right in our nation's history and tradition, it was a crime just about everywhere, actually everywhere. At least it was a crime in some circumstances everywhere in 1868. And for that reason alone, the reasoning underlying Roe and Casey, the substantive due process reasoning, could not carry the day. They then turned to a third and final theory, which was argued in support of the abortion right. And that's that there should be recognized a right to reproductive autonomy and more generally bodily autonomy. Um, Those of you who have taken criminal procedure know that there are constitutional rights that limit the police, for example, from going in and pumping your stomach against your will or drawing blood against your will. Um, and so it, this, this, the right to abortion has sometimes been analogized to those cases. Uh, but the, the, the majority didn't really struggle with this for very long. It said to frame the issue as a right to autonomy at a high level of generality like that would lead to the recognition of rights such as a right to do illegal drugs, a right to prostitution and other such rights. So there is no constitutional right to autonomy 
at that high level of generality that protects the right to abortion. So the majority concluded Roe was incorrectly decided. But that's not where it had to stop, because in Casey in 1992, the Supreme Court had considered whether to overrule Roe versus Wade and had actually bypassed the question of whether Roe versus Wade was correctly decided. In Casey, the court relied on a doctrine, Latin term for it, stare decisis, to stand by the prior decisions and said that the core of Roe versus Wade needed to be upheld uh, because uh, an analysis of the various stare decisis factors that inform whether a court should overrule a precedent led to the conclusion that it would be profoundly disruptive and unsettling to American political society and to women to withdraw from them a fundamental right that had been granted in an earlier case. All right, and so the majority in Dobbs turned to the stare decisis analysis from Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And it said, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court didn't do stare decisis right. Okay, first and foremost, stare decisis should have very little effect when the question is one of constitutional law, says the Dobbs majority. It is more important almost always to get the constitution right to issue a correct ruling than to stand by settled precedent simply for, for, you know, for prudential reasons. Okay, so that was something that was not fully appreciated in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Also, says the majority here, stare decisis must take account of the nature of the court's error and the quality of its reasoning. And Roe, according to the majority, was egregiously wrong on the day that it was decided, and it remains egregiously wrong today. Also, the majority in Dobbs said, Casey misapplied one of the factors in traditional stare decisis analysis, that of reliance. Again, those of you who are law students have probably talked about stare decisis and reliance. One of the reasons not to change settled law is when people rely on settled law and order their affairs accordingly. In Casey, the court suggested that women had made judgments about their professional lives, their personal lives, in reliance on the availability of reproductive autonomy, should they become pregnant at a time that they did not wish to be pregnant. The Dobbs majority said that's not how reliance works. Societal reliance like that of women in general, that's not what the reliance interest is designed to protect. Rather, the reliance interest is designed to protect a much narrower interest, an interest that individuals who have maybe written a will or sold some land or taken some legal action in reliance on the law being stable. All right, that's what reliance interests are all about. Okay, not societal law. Uh, uh, reliance interests such as this. All right. Um, okay, so um, before concluding, the majority took pains to say that other substantive due process rights not involving abortion should not be considered to be thrown into doubt by this opinion. Um, because the reasoning in this case is very easily applied to other major substantive due process decisions. And a, and a couple of those are the Obergefell decision from 2015, which recognized same-sex marriage, Griswold versus Connecticut from 1965, okay, and a variety of, of uh, other decisions in that general, you know, in that general uh, uh, line of cases. So the majority says, don't read this case as, as having particular application outside of the context of abortion. At least the five members of the majority said that. Five members of the majority also said 
yes, there will be a strong political reaction to our decision, but we can't take that into account at all. We are a law court. We are umpires calling balls and strikes. So what emerges as the test at the end of the day? State regulations of abortion or state prohibitions of abortion are subject to the most permissive constitutional inquiry, rational basis review. So long as there is a legitimate interest, so long as there's a rational basis for concluding that a legitimate interest supports some state law, that law is going to enjoy a presumption of constitutionality and it's gonna be upheld if there is some legitimate interest in support of it. And the majority made clear uh, that protecting unborn life is a legitimate interest. And it gives rise to an ability on the part of state legislatures to actually prohibit abortion and not just limit it. As I mentioned before, really quickly, 30 seconds, Justice Thomas concurred separately to say, um, actually let's wipe out substantive due process altogether. Um, so I think it's very clear that Justice Thomas at least uh, is ready to go on to uh, re you know, reverse uh, some rulings, including the Obergefell ruling. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh concurred separately to emphasize that in his view, states may still permit abortion, okay, and that people have a right to travel to other states if they live in a state which prohibits abortion to obtain abortion. So he tried to, to sort of de-emphasize the sort of startling nature of the court's ruling. Chief Justice Roberts concurred separately to say, again, as I said before, we shouldn't even revisit Roe and, and um, Casey in, ter in terms of overruling them. We should just uphold this statute on narrower grounds. And then there was an impassioned dissent jointly signed by Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Um, um, I'll just leave it at that, I think, as an introduction. Thank you, Professor Gravy. That is a great overview of the decision. We're gonna spend some time unpacking, I think a lot of what you talked about and, and talking about the implications. I see some questions already coming into the Q&A, keep them coming. We're gonna spend the first half of this seminar continuing to unpack the decisions and then I will definitely turn to those, those questions. So thank you for those who have already posted some. But before we go on, I wanna to turn to Professor Hodder. There are two ways to see this decision. On the one hand, it's a big constitutional decision on the other hand, it's a big healthcare um, decision and has a lot of implications around health law. Can you give us that perspective? How, how is this a health decision as much as a constitutional one? Thank you so much, um, Rebecca and, and John for your amazing overview. Um, so I'm gonna look at the healthcare implications for a little bit while you all digest um, Professor Graby's incredible summary of a very uh, complex decision, which in essence, um, uh, I just want to clarify uh, for those of you who are wondering, it did not take away the power of states to offer full reproductive health care, including abortion. And in fact, New Hampshire, individuals in New Hampshire have the legal right to abortion during the first 24 weeks of pregnancy. And that's really important to remember. Right now in the healthcare space, um, we are seeing chaos, and it's really interesting um, that we have Kavanaugh uh, saying in his concurrence, oh, wow, we did a huge thing today. We we didn't even kind of overrule uh, Roe. We completely overruled Roe and completely overruled Casey. And in fact, what's left standing, as, as Professor Graby said, was this 
almost legislative articulation by Alito of a rational basis that can support um, a state's regulation of abortion. And, and these are very important for healthcare because what Alito said was states can regulate respect for preservation for prenatal life at any stage. As Professor Graby said, the elimination of particularly gruesome medical procedures the preservation of the integrity of the medical profession, mitigation of fetal pain, prevention of discrimination based on race, sex, or disability. And these uncomfortably vague statements by Justice Alito on what gives rise to a, a state's legitimate interest have huge implications for healthcare, reproductive healthcare, and the kind of healthcare that women have been getting now um, with an unconstitutional right behind it um, for over 50 years. So um, what we have in the healthcare community is now a, a huge divide. Um, D Justice Alito did not offer a, a, a glide path of any kind. Um, and again, Kavanaugh is the one who highlighted that and said, hey, uh, by the way, um, I just want to make sure that people realize we're we're, we're going to let you don't don't disturb people's right to travel and and maybe let's not right away criminalize providers or women who might have accessed this constitutional right over the past fifty years. So you see from Kavanaugh sort of, uh oh, uh, what's going to happen? And exactly what he predicted has happened, which is we have twenty six states now who are seeking to ban abortion in some uh, highly restrictive way. Uh, the other states are not. We have uh, courts um, deciding every day somewhat different in terms of stays or not. We have springing laws from the 1800s. Um, and, and we have a whole lot of chaos in the healthcare community and in everyone's community about what is available and what isn't. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means, Rebecca, as we move through this. Um, but for healthcare, great uncertainty for providers, great uncertainty for women, uh, depends on what state you're in. It depends on what the courts, state courts in your state did yesterday um, or your legislature is gonna do tomorrow. And um, that's what we're facing in the healthcare community. Just one more point, uh, which is, you know, I've said this before on podcasts, um, uh, countries are measured um, uh, around their global health, the World Health Organization. Countries are measured by several key indicators. Um, you know, infectious disease rates, right? The other thing they're measured on is maternal and fetal mortal uh, uh, child mortality. And our maternal mortality is very high in the United States. And we have actual scientific analysis of the impact of the restrictions on access to abortion, which has been available and practiced for decades uh, since the original uh, millennia of human beings um, since the beginning of time. And we have actual data about just how high our mortality rate is going to go, especially in vulnerable communities um, with this kind of, of ban. So the healthcare community is really uh, bracing uh, for what comes next. Thank you, Professor Hodder. There's a couple of threshold questions that I'd like to pack into, uh, unpack individually. And the first one, I think I'm going to ask Professor Hodder to comment first, and then I, I'm going to invite you to, to kick it over to Professor Graby as you like. And that's this basic question of gender. Um, Professor Graby, you noted that the court um, looked at earlier cases and basically said, even though half the population 
the women half of the population are the ones that are affected by pregnancy. This isn't gender discrimination when we look at abortion. Can we look at that both, I think, Professor Hodder, just scientifically first? Um, is this a characteristic unique to women? And then Professor Graby, can you talk just for a minute about why that, why protection under gender wouldn't be a protected class? So let's just remember, um, it takes two to tango, right? There are, are two people involved in any uh, uh, activity that results um, in um, the, the birth of a child or at least a, a partner of some kind. Uh, to effectuate. So it affects everybody, but certainly women are the ones whose bodies are impacted by carrying um, a child to term. And so there's almost no way to witness the decision's impact without understanding it's an overwhelming impact on uh, women's health uh, because a, a choice um, or a necessity around the need for abortion care um, may be taken away by states. And that is going to uh, unduly impact women um, who could have made that choice, have made that choice. Um, in fact, you know, a, a, the, the, the rates are a little bit unclear, but maybe a quarter of women in the United States have had an abortion for some reason at some point in their in their lives. And so it, it necessarily impacts uh, women's autonomy. And I think um, Professor Grady can, I'm sure, wax eloquent on this, which is that kind of personal autonomy is and, and, and decisions around family, decisions around birth control, which interestingly, Kavanaugh also raises his hand and said, oh, just to, just to be clear, we're, we're not, uh, despite despite our stare decisis, uh, um, you know, it, are not observing stare decisis in this case and overturning a constitutional right that has been on the books and protected for 50 years. We're not going to do the same with access to reproductive health um, or uh, decisions about um, family. And, and you know, it, it really is a, a question about what might happen uh, in the future. And for women, it really does make the question of access to care at various stages of your reproductive life something that is going to cause a great deal of concern and enter the consciousness in a very, very, very clear way uh, for the women who are growing into reproductive health uh, years and thereafter. Professor Gravy, do you want to address the equal protection and gender question? Sure. Um, this is, this may make some of the students on the, on this uh, webinar pull their hair out because they've heard me say it so many times. But I'm going to say it again. I think a, I think a helpful way to think about at a very macro level um, the various approaches uh, of the two camps on the Supreme Court right now with respect to constitutional rights um, is to contrast at one end of the spectrum, those who believe, who, who adopt the, the view, let the justice, let justice reign though the heavens may fall, right? On the one hand. And then over on the other hand, there's the famous line, the Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact, right? So in the former idea, we get the idea that the job of the justice is to turn up correct legal answers, to discover constitutional meaning without regard to consequences. And on the other side is the idea that the Constitution needs to be a good constitution for a 21st century society that's very different than the society in which, you know, its initial provisions were adopted. Um, and that is much more pluralistic and diverse, et cetera. So right now we have five to six justices in the let justice reign though the heavens may fall camp. 
and we have no more than three justices who are consequentialist. Okay, so let's go back to the question you asked, which is why isn't a law that affects women and women only treated as discriminatory on the basis of sex or gender? Because once that determination is made, okay, the law is subject to heightened scrutiny um, and is not necessarily gonna be constitutional. The answer, the formalistic answer to that is, look, there is no discrimination on the basis of sex or gender. There is discrimination on the basis of having an abortion. It is an incidental fact that only women can have an abortion, but the law doesn't target women, it targets abortion. Ipso facto, there's no discrimination in the law. It's reviewed for rational basis review. That's the approach of a majority of the court. Um, they, in, in order to make the argument um, that, look, you know, this impacts women disproportionately, et cetera, that's getting into realism. That's getting into consequences. And a majority of this court is uninterested in consequences. And that's a, a great segue into another point you made, Professor Graby, and then I'll, and I'll ask Professor Hodder to, to comment on this on a, as a healthcare question. The history in this case, the, the Justice Alito in particular looks to history and, and you, you cited him, we're looking at things that are deeply rooted in the country's essential sense of liberty. Mm-hmm. You, you said that kind of the baseline for all the rights we might have is 1868. Did they get the history right? Start with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm not a historian, right? So I all I do is read about the historical fights, and I will say that there is let's let let's just say there is not a consensus that they got the history right. First of all, they say Roe got the history wrong, and there are some who would say, yeah, Roe could have been a little a little better in terms of history, but there are there are others who would defend how Roe viewed the history. Those who say that the court had a sort of a had the blinders on at the very least with respect to its historical analysis, say that at common law and under the English system and in colonial times, abortion was not outlawed typically prior to a point in the pregnancy known as quickening. Quickening is that point at which the women, the woman who's the, 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 the woman who's pregnant um, can feel the fetus move in the womb. Um, So post quickening, there was regulation and even banning of abortion, but prior to quickening, there wasn't. Um, And these historians say the the criminal, the more draconian criminal bans on abortion that we saw adopted in the middle of the 18th century and leading up to 1868 was actually led by doctors who were men who didn't like the, the outsized roles as they thought it, that midwives and others were playing in giving medical care to pregnant women. And so they became more assertive in terms of demanding statutory responses uh, to, um, uh, to abortion. So I'll just leave it there. I'm not a historian, but I'll also say, I don't know if the nine justices of the Supreme Court and their clerks are historians either, but the approach of the Supreme Court right now certainly privileges history. And Professor Hodder, can you jump in there even more on the medical side because Women have been getting pregnant since Eve. Um, Did they get the history right? Right. Uh, Women have been getting pregnant since the dawn of time, and women have known how uh, to ensure their family autonomy uh, and their bodily autonomy, uh, known how to terminate pregnancies from the dawn of time. And in fact, it's something that has been passed down from generation to generation, and John is completely correct. A procedure as with in relationship to an abortion is something way current in, in, in modern 
medicine and the concept of being able to uh, regulate um, female autonomy through the use of medicine is age old. And so one of the things that's so important is when you're looking at history, of course, it's selective. Who gets to state the history? And it's really interesting as Alito tries to characterize it with, um, you know, the, the historical understanding of white men in England at a certain period of time when let's let's just remember women didn't even vote in this country till 1920. So when you're talking about what the the law respected in terms of traditions of history, uh, it's really difficult to go back that far to try and prove that. And that was the whole reasoning in the original Roe case, which is, you know, you've got to look at what um, uh, autonomy means now and what that means in terms of the health and well-being uh, of women and families. And so the historical context can be told many different ways, uh, depending on if you're looking at it from a healthcare perspective or you're looking at it, you know, from a, an, a different historical perspective. The other thing to note is when Alito was giving its justification for the Mississippi law and talked about, you know, the fact that the Mississippi law will stand um, and that the Mississippi rationale um, is based on the protection of life of the unborn. And because the procedure is barbaric and non-therapeutic um, for, for non-therapeutic or elective reasons, you know, some of that science was just is not does not hold up in, in medicine. And so we have to be really careful when we're talking about something that is a healthcare procedure and is actually uh, making a decision about whether in one state now, what could be considered necessary, life-saving, life-changing healthcare could now be considered in the state next door murder. And that is an unprecedented impact of the overturning of the constitutional right and the taking away of that constitutional right and the impact on healthcare and access to it. Um, that is a really stark contrast and it is causing states to have to consider uh, whether or not they need to protect their professionals in their state where they're um, able to act, where women are able to access the full spectrum of reproductive health care, whether they need to protect the professionals from the long arm or extradition to other states where it's being criminalized because that's being suggested by attorney general. They're needing to consider um, whether or not women uh, will be able to access the care in their state and still be able to travel. They're having to consider what kind of health plans, you know, employers who have employees in a variety of states are employees who have traditionally had access to reproductive health care in the full spectrum, including abortion care. What happens um, if an employer is now uh, prohibiting that access in another state where the law is different? And so there's a whole series of questions uh, that come to play in professionalism, professional malpractice, professional licensure, as well as all of the access decisions that are made throughout our economy regarding health care. And that's a great segue. I, I want to turn in a minute to audience questions, and I'm seeing a number of them come in. So I'm going to invite the audience to go ahead and fill those in, and I will I will turn to asking those next. But to to kind of conclude this la this first part of the conversation before we go to the audience, let me ask this: Does a certain class of people, do women, have fewer rights than they did six days ago? And Professor Graby, I'll ask you to 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 opine on that. There's been several commentators that say women have fewer rights than they did last Friday. And one, is that true? 
And two, if it is true, have we ever taken away rights? Has the Supreme Court ever taken away rights from people before? I think that as a descriptive matter, that's undeniably true. Um, last week, uh, a woman prior to the point of viability, which is about 24 weeks into a pregnancy, uh, a woman had a qualified constitutional right uh, to end that pregnancy. Um, that is no longer the case. Um, it is now subject to what the legislative majority in her state uh, is going to decide unless Congress takes action. And there is pending legislation at the federal level uh, passed by the House of Representatives uh, to protect abortion rights nationally through federal legislation. That legislation has been sent to the Senate. Uh, it will be filibustered. Um, so unless uh, unless uh, the, the Senate decides to do away with the filibuster, that legislation will not become law. So I, you know, I don't know how to answer that question other than as yes, um, uh, women have lost a fundamental right and, um, you know, uh, we could quibble about examples of of people losing rights that they had. But I don't think there is any example of a fundamental or a quasi fundamental constitutional right being taken away, um, such as occurred in this particular case. You can't hear you, Rebecca. I'm sorry. Do you want to do you want to add to that? Well, I just want to say it's interesting looking at the decision as it plays out amongst the justices. And I think we're seeing a real shift in the chief justices sort of control over the court and a real dialogue that we need to have around the Supreme Court's um, processes and what they're willing to do. Justice Roberts kept saying, only do what's necessary. And the only do what's necessary really does impact how the states can respond to this kind of a dramatic shift. So assuming, and I do assume Professor Gravy is correct, there has never been this type of taking away uh, in this dramatic a fashion. Certainly there has never been this dramatic a taking away that is effected immediately into the chaos that is now the healthcare access issues going on in our 50 states. And so um, that is something that Justice Roberts cautioned against and did not support and warned uh, about the impact of, and even Kavanaugh uh, was sort of raising his hand to say, uh, wow, there's gonna be a lot of impact. And it's surprising that the majority said, you know, not our role, as a court, not our role as the third branch of government to even pay the slightest attention to the impact of our decision on the entire country and 50% of uh, the people based on gender. And I know that uh, the rights uh, to bodily autonomy and even to, uh, to procreation uh, are, are, are men, uh, and, and all our gender um, identifications are impacted by this as well. So I know there's lots involved um, in the decision about family. That's great. And, and you just spoke to uh, kind of two whole buckets of questions. So I'm going to let the audience know I'm combining. Several people have asked something relatively similar. So I'm going to try to paraphrase. Um, but Professor Hodder, I'm going to start with you. And then we'll go to Professor Gravy. One is about this a bodily autonomy question, 
did the decision, and I think you just spoke to this, did the decision really do away with all bodily autonomy or is abortion really different than cavity searches and having your stomach pumped and taking your DNA? And is it just that the court misunderstood abortion and and really found it radically different than any other kind of bodily autonomy? And I'm going to ask that kind of from a, a health law point of view, and then Professor Graby, I'll, I'll let you comment as well. It's a difficult question because when you ask about the bodily autonomy and the individual uh, determination and family uh, questions, which abortion um, has as its as it at its heart, the difference with abortion is only in the potential life that. Um, an unborn uh, fetus represents. And that's the distinction that the court makes. I think for many, that is a distinction that we could have a long discussion about. In the healthcare world, ultimately, the decision about whether to care for the breathing mother and make the decision based on that mother's um, and that family's uh, decision-making actually um, is what is the focus of um, the healthcare system. But I think the thing that makes it different that the court identified is that question about potential life. I think in many circumstances, you could argue that the autonomy and the, and the personal autonomy and the privacy that Roe is protecting is along the spectrum uh, that you recognize in terms of what does it mean to protect personal autonomy and privacy, and what does it mean to invade it? And on whose behalf can you invade and undermine that personal autonomy? Certainly Alito has created a very different rule than we had before um, under the Roe and Casey uh, paradigms. Thank you. Professor Gravy, any thoughts? I, I, I agree completely with Professor Hodder. I think, um, I think I think the majority would say it's the it's the it's the presence of this developing human life that makes this so different uh, at the risk of sounding snarky. And I don't mean it this way. Um, members of the majority certainly seem sensitive to uh, the bodily interest of not having a vaccine that you don't want uh, or not wearing a mask that you prefer not to wear. So I think there is still a sensitivity to issues of bodily autonomy. Um, I think the way they would distinguish those situations is to say, um, this is different, or at least legislative majorities in the states are permitted to conclude that this is different because of the, the growing life in the womb. There's another bucket of questions and I am going to combine five or six folks who have asked something along these lines. We have been using very intentionally the word woman. Um, and by that, we largely have been indicating cisgendered women, I think inherent, Im implied that. In fact, there are other kinds of people who can get pregnant. There are, are, are trans people, there are um, binary or gender, gender nonconforming people. How does this decision impact those folks? I know there's, there's many questions in the comments about is the way we approach advocacy around this decision hindered or, or helped by focusing on the word women. But before we get to the advocacy question, just for today, does this decision really recognize anything beyond a fairly traditional idea of a cisgendered woman? And um, Professor Gravy, I'll ask you to start and then I'll kick that over to, to Professor Hodder. It's, it's, I'm, I'm really glad that you point that out. Um, 
you know, I guess my immediate reaction is it, it it's all going to depend on how seriously a majority of the justices take the this is a unique situation because it's a pregnancy, um, which is definitely part of the majority opinion. But on the other hand, the legal rationale, the principal legal rationale in the majority opinion uh, is that there's no protection for this right because this right is not deeply rooted in American history and traditions. Um, and so um, if you employ that sort of reasoning and you start to think about, you know, the myriad other rights issues uh, that are of particular concern, right, to the LGBTQ plus community, um, I understand the concern that this may be just step one of um, uh, of a legal uh, a legal re revolution. Really, I understand it, Professor Hodder. So I guess I would say, yeah. If your question is, does the decision by the majority by Alito um, recognize the nuanced? Um, Liberty, the liberties we have in a nuanced uh, identification of our gender, absolutely not. Does it recognize the nuanced understanding and choice we bring to our understanding of family in our current society? Absolutely not. You know, does it recognize uh, the potential, um, the science that exists right now around uh, procreation and the ability uh, to bring to um this world of life in in slightly different ways in vitro etc absolutely not and so this decision is certainly encased in the concept of uh gender uh that that may not reflect what we see in our uh, communities today in any way and the other thing to look at is does this decision uh recognize with the with the ultimate uh uh, doing away with substantive due process around the concept of a liberty interest and family autonomy. If you look at that part of the decision and you ask what next, despite the, oh no, we're not gonna, you know, throw into the wind these other substantive due process rights we've 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 found to be constitutional uh, due to autonomy and privacy. Um, I think there is a real, real question about where the court's going to head, um, especially with the tailwind behind this concept that we can have definitions that are so unnuanced and so clear cut in the way we define autonomy and family in the United States today. Thank you. Another question kind of bundled, or series of questions bundled about what's going to happen at the state level. And, and at the beginning, Professor Graby, you noted that really what the court did was allow the states to regulate abortion. There is no national abortion ban. And right now there's no national federal rule about abortion, but in fact said states, it is okay for you to regulate. And Professor Hodder, you mentioned that we've got 26 states who look like they're headed down one lane and a bunch of states heading down the other. Two questions, and I'll let you, you both struggle with this. One is just what it means. And is there any precedent for having some states regulate something so specifically and frankly so harshly when other states do not? What does that mean in terms of um, both our constitutional ability? Professor Gravy, you mentioned traveling between states. Um, 
I think most of us learned that the Commerce Clause lets us go between states, but what does that mean? And Professor Hodder, it's interesting the number of corporations who have said as part of our healthcare for our employees, if you work at Starbucks or Dick's, we will we will give you rights to travel from the state in which you were employed to another state to access this procedure and we'll we'll pay your way which suggests in some odd way that the citizenship of or your employer is more important than the citizenship of your state in accessing certain kinds of health law so professor gravy maybe i'll start with you what does it mean um, to have this many states that might have different definitions and Will the Supreme Court uphold that many different definitions across different states? Um, well, I put in the mind of the bitter divisions over slavery, right? Um, and you know the the uh, you know the, the fugitive slave laws and the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution. I mean, it's you, like as you say. I mean, that we've always had very different legal regimes as you go from one state to another. Um, and you know, I, I think back before. You know, just as we were we're starting to recognize civil unions and then certain states started to recognize same sex marriage, you know, other states resisted. Um, but I think you're right to suggest that there's just an order of magnitude difference between state A defining something as homicide um, and state B allowing it, um, you know, with with few to any restrictions. Um as a consequence of that, what we're going to see is that states are not going to be content, as is often the case, right, with federalism issues to say, we're going to live our lives the way we want to live them. And we're going to let other people live the lives that they want to lead. You know, the whole idea uh, of states as laboratories of experimentation as, as and federalism allowing one to vote with one's feet. If one doesn't like what's happening where one lives, you can you can move somewhere else. Well, you know, we're already seeing um, that there isn't going to be a live and let live attitude in the states. Lots of states are already moving towards uh, laws which uh, are going to seek to prevent women from leaving the state in order to have an abortion, um, notwithstanding, you know, the right to interstate travel, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, state regulation of conduct in another state is thought to be a you know, paradigmatic violation of the Commerce Clause. Um, so, um, it's a it's a great question, and um, I think it is something to to be concerned about. Professor Hodder. Well, I think that um, Professor Gravy really summarized it well, and I, I think that the the difference among states is going to be impactful in so many ways. And you know, interestingly, the the majority says now we can finally. Uh, uh, take this decision that's caused so much rancor and and so many people to opine and give it back, back to states and now we're done, and 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 that's just not going to be the case. It's going to be such a, a a divisive issue and the language that the majority gives to to women who may have had an abortion or may need to have an abortion or choose to in the future in whatever state they're able to going forward is so demoralizingly pejorative and laced with the underlying issue, which is this issue of morality, this issue of religion. And it just comes through so that you're creating a space where the dialogue is going to be fraught uh, with passion as it has been, and probably even more so. And then the divisiveness between the different states is going to um, pose significant challenge to legislators, to healthcare professionals, to individuals, 
and to obviously businesses when we have so much at stake right now after the COVID you know, pandemic and when businesses are trying to deal with workforce issues um, and we're trying to get out from under you know, the two years of, of quarantine and isolation and, and debate, now we have this just to add to our arsenal of divisive rhetoric and um, you know, you have you know, you have 10 year olds who've been raped in a state that is just now outlawed abortion, you know, trying to find help elsewhere. And that's just going to create uh, real troublesome chaos. Now, maybe we will go back and have the conversations that the majority hoped we would have. I don't know where that's going to lead um, as we face this future together. And that leads to a couple of great last questions. And I recognize we're coming down on time, but there's been several questions about the integrity of the court, and then a couple about the impact going forward legally, kind of what might happen in terms of legislation. Uh, Professor Gravy, let me ask you about the court first. There are questions like, does this impeach the integrity of the court? Um, did the justices lie during their confirmations? And can we do anything about that? Could justices be impeached? There are even calls of violence against the court. Can you just talk about the next couple of weeks of the court itself? Courts have made, the Supreme Court has made unpopular decisions before, but what does this mean for the court? You know, there's just, I, I, I don't think you can have, you know, a, a sort of a, an answer that, that takes into account all perspectives. I mean, many people in this country think that this shows uh, a, a court uh, hell bent on abusing the power of judicial review that it that it grabbed for itself in Marbury versus Madison. Other people see this as a great restoration, um, and that you know, beginning in the middle of the 20th century, um, the court had embarked on uh, under the guise of constitutional interpretation um, had embarked on a lawmaking spree that was fundamentally illegitimate, and that you know, decisions like Dobbs and others um, are are restoring the proper balance between the authority of legislators uh, or legislatures um, who represent the will of the people and the uh, authority of courts. Um, so um, it's, I guess it's impossible to say, it depends on what your priors are. Um, I would say with respect to, um, what was the, I'm sorry, there was, a, I was some, um, having a senior moment. Um, <laughs> Just what's the impact on the court going forward and what should we expect the court to, to be looking like in the next year? Oh, I think, uh, I mean, you know, they, it's a good time for them to be off for summer uh, and head out of town and let temperatures, I guess, come down a little bit. But um, they've already got a number of blockbusters on the docket for next year, including um, affirmative action and um, the independent state legislature doctrine, which was um, put on the court's docket today. And, uh, you know, uh, free speech case of revisiting Masterpiece Cake Shop. So they're not this majority is not interested in lowering the temperature. I mean, we, we, you know, it's clear what they think their job is. Their job is to, um, is to bring the constitution as they understand it um, to life um, in American law. And if that requires some change, well then so be it. Professor Hodder, I'm gonna give you the last question then I'll, I'll give you both the chance for a final word. Um, it, what is next in terms of legislation? What do you expect um, both the folks in the healthcare space to be looking at kind of the corporate standard healthcare interests, the advocacy groups and, and, and some of the other groups to be looking at? We have folks asking about a national 
the federal law, the Women's Health Protection Act. We have folks asking what might happen in New Hampshire. At the top of the of the webinar, you did say New Hampshire, it's still legal to have an abortion in New Hampshire. But what what's next at the federal level and the state level in the light of this decision? Well, you know, to remember, there have been people who fight been fighting to overturn Roe v. Wade and Casey for a very long time. And there's many more things on the list. And, you know, so I think that uh, uh, this this dynamic that will go on at the federal and state level will continue at the rate that we've been seeing in the last few days, um, because at the federal level, there are going to be those who are thrilled with the SCOTUS decision, trying to make sure they can codify in what has been stated in legislation and vice versa. There will be those trying to protect um, the women's access to abortion. And we've seen developments even today uh, with Biden's statement um, about what's going to come down and shake out at the federal level. State level, same thing. So we are going to see, you know, for a long time, so many different restrictions um, that were placed, attempted to be placed on abortion and reproductive health, including birth control, were sort of stayed off by Roe protections and Casey protections. Those are no longer, I don't think we have any idea what is going to happen at the state level, efforts to prevent access to reproductive health care um, and other issues that, um, you know, we could call uh, autonomy, we could call them social issues, we can call them religious issues, we can call them all kinds of issues, um, but they exist today amongst us um, as a community. And so I think we're going to see a lot. We're immediately seeing uh, governors, even Republican governors in states that protect abortion, trying to ensure that, that anyone in that state um, is safe for providing or accessing uh, reproductive health services and cannot be investigated, disciplined, et cetera, based on the law of any other state. Um, we're seeing attorney generals come out and state that. I don't think either of those has happened in New Hampshire, but New Hampshire, um, I'm sure we're going to see an effort next year at legislation that tries to codify some of the protections in Roe, and 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 um, there'll certainly be a robust debate. New Hampshire has historically protected the right to privacy. In fact, it just reaffirmed uh, the constitutional right to privacy with added bells and whistles a couple of years ago. Um, and it has had a longstanding tradition until recent years with a with sort of a new uh, a new conservative approach that came to the state um, from elsewhere. There's been a there's been a, a real change and shift in sort of the uh, the political dynamic on what's um, on the protection of autonomy, despite the fact that we have a longstanding, you know, religious tradition and very strongly held religious beliefs in in New Hampshire. There's sort of been individualism um, and individual autonomy that has prevailed uh, for many years. Um, and now it seems like that's become a real political sword. It depends on the issue and who you are as to what individual autonomy actually means, as Professor Gravy identified. And with that, we are at time. I want to thank our audience and acknowledge some questions we didn't get to, and they are interesting ones about the motivation of folks who, who fought for 50 years and feel that they have a victory and kind of what would motivate folks um, and what might motivate those people going forward, questions about how state laws will function going forward, questions about what the Supreme Court might do if there's a federal or other state laws. I, this, the, we, we, could, we could go on for hours, and I think we will. Coming this fall, Professor Graby, I know that the Redmond Center will be holding programs looking at the Supreme Court um, and looking at the Constitution because we've had a, a heck of a year to talk about. 
In the next couple of days, we will look at two more big decisions that came down. Again, as Dean Carpenter mentioned, kind of as, as teachers, um, more than advocates, just to have a look at those decisions. Professor Graby and I will get together on Tuesday, the 5th at noon to look at the West Virginia decision, um, ruling that the EPA does not have the right under Section 111D to regulate carbon in power plants. Um, and the following day at noon, Professor Graby will, will sit with Professor Mike McCann to talk about um, the Kennedy decision that recently, where the court recently ruled that coaches can pray with their with their uh, players at the 50-yard line after a football game. These are two other big decisions that just need some unpacking. Um, and so we're, we're hoping to at least explore what they say and what they might mean for us as we look at other conversations in the future. I want to thank our panelists for um, spending time with us today. This came together very quickly because we knew we knew folks were going into the holiday weekend and they might have questions. I hope we have answered some of them. And I hope that you will um, continue to join us for these panels. Reach out when you have questions and we will see you online or, or for our law students, we'll see you back here next fall. So thank you, Professor Gravy. Thank you, Professor Hodder. Thank you, Dean Carpenter, um, for sponsoring this event. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.